Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. I'm Hamish Johnston, and coming up, I'm in conversation with three scientists who are using machine learning in their search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Are you working in energy research, sensors, electrochemistry, or solid-state science and technology? Mark your calendar April 2nd to the 9th for the Electrochemical Society's Free the Science Week. You will have free access to world-renowned, highly peer-reviewed research in the ECS Digital Library on IOP Science, as ECS demonstrates their commitment to open science. Download research without a subscription and join ECS in Accelerating Science. Visit ecsdl.org. Does intelligent life exist elsewhere in the universe? We humans have been pondering this mystery for centuries, if not millennia. But how could we tell if advanced civilizations exist on distant planets? For decades, some astronomers have been sifting through telescope data in search of technosignatures, signals that are very likely to have been made by extraterrestrial technologies, rather than by natural astrophysical processes. It's no exaggeration to say that this search for extraterrestrial intelligence, or SETI, is akin to looking for a needle in a haystack. As a result, scientists have been developing increasingly powerful algorithms to search through astronomical data. To chat about a new machine learning algorithm for SETI, I'm joined down the line from the University of Toronto by Peter Ma and Leo Risk, and from France by Cherry Ng who has recently moved from the U of T to the French National Centre for Scientific Research in Orléans. Hi, all of you. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us on. So, Leo, first question for you. Can you explain how a typical SETI search is done and what the challenges are? Uh, right. So um, when we're looking for um, techno signatures, basically, we only have uh, one idea of what they could look like. Uh, we have the human race as a sample. Uh, so um, in, uh, you know, in our uh, fairly recent history, uh, we've been able to create um, uh, radio signals uh, that are that are uh, that we use to communicate. Uh, and these are quite easy to um, uh, to make and to receive. Um, between ourselves, of course, uh, but they also um, propagate uh, through space very easily as well. Um, and one good thing about radio waves is that they, they don't get easily blocked um, so much as opposed to other uh, wavelengths of light. Um, so this is the kind of thing that would be useful for us to look elsewhere. Uh, you know, uh, so that's, uh, that's basically why... Um, these are the techno signatures that we're looking at. So we're looking at. Um, uh, we'd like to say that we're listening in for these uh, for these um, for these signals, uh, but they are they are light, so uh, they're not visible light. They're radio light, so that's something that we use telescopes and dishes to uh, to detect. Um, and basically, we're looking at a whole range of frequencies 
Um, so uh, usually like in, in, in the in a certain number of gigahertz um, frequency. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so in terms of um, in terms of uh, in terms of that, basically we're looking um, we we want to look at different possible uh, sources of uh, of radio wavelengths um, that uh, that could be um, emitted by extraterrestrials. Um, so we look at certain uh, stars that we expect to have planets. Uh, we point a telescope at it and try to listen in for what uh, for what these signals could be. And um, one very key characteristic um, of a of a techno signature, so a a radio wavelength um, a signal, a radio signal uh, that would be made by technology and not made by something natural, um, is that the um, we could we could say that the the signal is very sharp, the very very narrow. Uh, so I said we're 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 looking at things in the gigahertz. Well, the width of the signal is only one hertz, and I remind you that a gigahertz is a billion hertz. So out of this 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 whole wide range, you have this tiny 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 peak, tiny tiny signal, um, and that's something that humans can do. That's something that's it's useful for us, and we've been doing it for for decades um, uh, to 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 make communications. Um, and natural processes don't do that thing. Even the most narrow bandwidth um, uh, process will will have normally at least tens of hertz of, of width. Uh, so if we do see a one hertz wide um, uh, signal, it is it is a bit of a, a weird thing. Uh, to be, for it's it's not Newton. It's not. It wouldn't be a, a natural thing. Um, the other thing uh, that is characteristic of, of what we expect from a techno signature, and not something that we're looking for, um, is that the um, because of the because of really the the, the the relative speeds between the supposed source and ourselves, um, we have uh, Doppler effects, and usually you'll hear a lot about uh, Doppler shift. So that's when your signal is not at the correct frequency or at the correct wavelength of light that it should be. So it's shifted a bit. Um, but when we're dealing with um, techno signatures that are so narrow, we also have another Doppler effect called Doppler drift. Uh, and Doppler drift is if Doppler shift is caused by relative velocity uh, differences, well, Doppler drift is the change of that. It's caused by relative acceleration between things. So if something's rotating, um, let's say the planet around the star or the planet around itself, or even us, we're also rotating around our star. So our, our velocities are not actually one thing. They are slightly changing. So you can imagine like there's this wobble between the receiver and the transmitter. Um, and when you're dealing with something as small as one hertz, this is an effect that you can see. So your, your, your line of, of signal um, appears kind of slanted in a, in a, in a plot where you're analyzing for time. Uh, so, so you have this signal that's actually moving. And if you wait long enough, you know, the idea is that the signal will wobble back and forth. So, so the direction of the drift will actually go backwards because the, the planet will be in a, 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 our planet or their planet is, is you know, going, going through full revolutions. Um, yeah, and this is something that's quite, uh, I wouldn't say unique, but quite, uh, quite specific to SETI um projects because uh because of the the how how narrow how how narrow we're looking for these signals these are not things that you have to consider the doppler 
uh, drift is not something you have to consider when you're looking at the spectrum of a star, for example. Right. So that would that would that would let you say if you saw this Doppler drift, then you could you could say it's 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 coming from a planet, and um, and who knows you you might even be able to 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 calculate how fast the planet is rotating and its orbit around its star, those sorts of things. I'm guessing that that, that would be sort of a pipe dream, but it, it could be possible. Yeah, that's certainly, um, I don't know how possible that is, because there's a lot of factors that go into uh, what would cause this, uh, this effect. Um, but it would tell you at least that doesn't, it perhaps would not be coming uh, from, from locally. It seems like it might be coming from somewhere that's moving relative to us. Uh, so that's 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 the reason uh, we rely on this drift, or that we have we or that we expect to see, I should say, this drift. Um, so those are two things that we um, expect to see uh, in a techno signature. Uh, and then there's a third thing, which uh, which unfortunately is uh, all the noise. Uh, and so one way to describe uh, SETI uh, is to say, you know, of course, you're looking uh, uh, for a needle in a haystack, but it's also described as, you know trying to listen for crickets at a rock concert uh, because it's a bit, um, you know, you're, it's a bit self-defeating in a sense that you're really trying to listen out for all these uh, techno signatures, but you're here creating just copious amounts of, of techno signatures of your own. Uh, and you can't shut out, you can't, you can't ask the earth to please quiet down for a bit. We're listening, we're listening out into outer space. Um, so, so really it's, uh, you have to filter out all these things that are interfering with um, with, with your search, these are called, uh, this is called obviously radio frequency interference, RFI, that, that RFI is, is something common for a lot of, uh, uh, just, it's a common term for radio, uh, radio astronomy. So that would be things like mobile phone networks and microwave ovens and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Wi-Fi and absolutely all these things, all these things, all those sorts of things. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, so your, your haystack in this case is radio uh, radio telescope data um so uh what's the what are the telescopes like where you're getting this data from and and what sort of observations do they make are they these sort of classic dish type radio telescopes that uh that 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 seem familiar yeah actually though they are um so the telescope in this case is not something that you look through with your eyes it is uh, really a dish that captures um uh, radio waves. Um, uh, in the case of the one, uh, there, there, there could be, I should say, there, there's a lot of uh, different um, arrangements of this. Uh, some uh, radio telescopes uh, are a single big dish to capture because have, they need to be big dishes to uh, to really properly uh, look at uh, radio wavelengths. Um, some 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 telescopes we call them telescopes like we call them a telescope but they're actually composed of many dishes uh some they can also be called arrays so arrays of telescopes it can be sometimes confusing because you might call them a singular telescope when in reality they're they're more than one they can be spread out across um across the world can't they across a large area yeah mm. yeah so they can be across a continent or uh, or so, and you know they're all connected and and searching for, uh, or rather not searching, but but looking up uh, into the sky and uh, collecting data. And and the telescope, I think, for the recent study that that you've been involved in, yes. the telescope is the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. Right. And um, I'm I'm guessing that that is is that pointed at certain 
parts of the sky and and it just takes in lots and lots of data over 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 a fairly broad bandwidth uh, is that is that is that how those telescopes operate uh, so in the example of the green bank telescope it is a, it is a single dish it is a, a hundred meters in diameter it's um it's very big I think uh, it might still be the largest steerable telescope uh, on earth uh, so um there are larger ones that are that were that are uh, stationary, but that one you can it can actually shift and move uh, and point at uh, the target that you want. Um, uh, in the case of uh, of a search uh, for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, it would be pointed at a at a particular location, and then it would it would move to another location to point at. Um, and that kind of goes into the strategy of how uh, a, a search is done with a single dish telescope. Um, so the idea here is to compare, is to make sure that the signal we're looking at is coming from one direction in the sky. Uh, so we would, we would point, you would point the telescope at a source or a supposed source or whatever, an object of interest, uh, you would point it there for about four minutes. And then after that, you would point it elsewhere, because if you're pointing it elsewhere, you're expecting the signal that you're receiving to disappear. Because if you're still hearing it, that means it's not coming from that source. It's probably coming from you and that's the radio frequency interference that you want to rule out so after that you point it back at the source and back and forth and you do that a couple of times and those are on target and off target um, searches and you do that a couple of minutes each and then you uh, you expect to see um, a very sharp very narrow bandwidth signal that appears only in the on target uh, um, uh, searches i guess the on target um, uh, configuration uh, and not in the off target, uh, and of course it's drifting, so it's moving. the the, f the exact frequency of that signal is, is 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 drifting through time, and that's that's what we're that's what we're wanting to see. And Peter, you you've devised a, a deep learning algorithm that searches through radio telescope data for for these signals that Leo was was talking about. C can you explain in simple terms how the algorithm works? Right. So how Leo described uh, was perfect. Basically, what we want to see we want to see these narrow band Doppler drifting signals that only appear on the ons and disappear when we look at the offs. And so now this description is rather vague, right? This signal can be any kind of shape and morphology. It can be a squiggle. It can be a line. It can be, you know, a dashed line. It can be anything that you want. And so <clears throat> we don't actually know what, like, aliens or ATI might actually send to us. We have no idea what these signals would literally look like, but we know some idea as to you know, verifying if this is something of interest or not, and so this presents itself as a difficult uh, like programming or algorithm problem, right? Because on one hand, as humans, we can easily tell uh, whether or not it's something of interest, but we have no idea how to tell a computer how to do it explicitly, as explicit as a set of instructions like baking a cake, right? And so this is where the idea of machine learning and deep learning comes in. So the idea here is that on one hand, we have something called supervised learning. And the other hand, we have something called unsupervised learning. So on the supervised side, we're basically telling the computer that, hey, these are some 
you know, examples of what we want uh, as classified as interest uh, of signals of interest. And here's our examples of uh, like, you know, discarded junk or, you know, noise or RFI as Leo described, things that we don't want to keep. Right. And so we tell it these simulations from simulations. We tell it these are things we want to keep. These are things we want to discard. Pretty simple. But then you see there's a problem here already because we're biasing this algorithm to ex to to basically classify things we're expecting uh, these signals to look like, right? We're simulating them. We're expecting these signals to look like that. So it does, doesn't actually solve the problem just yet. This is where we're going to try to use something called unsupervised learning. So the idea here is that we're going to tell the algorithm, hey, here's a bunch of data a bunch of data where you are all the things that you should expect to see from looking at this data, right? And so once we're basically then telling it is that once you find something that is unexpected, some, something that you haven't seen before, flag it, right? Ah, and so right. the idea here is that, you know, all the data we collected is all the average expected things to, to, to see from the data. And once something unexpected comes out, i.e. an anomalous object or anomalous event, we tell it to flag it. And so the idea here is that combining both of these together, A, you're searching for a steady event, but you're also searching for an anomalous event, an event that you as a programmer might not anticipate what to expect from the data. And so that's the power of using these kinds of algorithms because you can massage these neural networks to doing the things that you wanted to, to do in a way that humans can't explicitly program into a set of instructions for a computer. So that's the idea of what I developed and with, with, a, with a group of co-authors here on you know, devising a new way of searching for, for these techno signatures. And Cherry, you, you looked at signals from 820 stars uh, in this study using, using Peter's algorithm. Where are these stars located and why did you choose to study them? We've chosen to analyze this data set. Um, it actually came from the Breakthrough Listen observation. Breakthrough Listen is a foundation that set out, sets out to look for city ETI signals. And their mandate is to monitor 1 million stars, prioritizing for the nearby ones, where let's say we have a better chance of like verifying any detections or even thinking about the establishing communication. So this is a very complete and homogeneous data set dedicated for the research of SETI. This, uh, that's why it is great to work on this data set. Another reason is that the data has been previously searched for ETI signals, which is really handy because we can then benchmark um, Peter's new algorithm against these previous analysis to see um, how we, if we are doing better, how can we improve on anything. Now, um, after analyzing the 820 stars, the signals of interest that we have detected actually came from five stars. They are sort of between 30-ish to 80, almost 90 light years. So they're pretty much neighbors in our Milky Way galaxy, but still it's not that close. It takes, it will take literally, it literally, it will take light 34 to 88 years, depending on which stars, which star we're talking about for any information to come to us. 
And you guys have just um, published a paper in Nature Astronomy um, where you, you highlight um, eight previously undetected signals of interest in this data. What, can you describe these signals, uh, Leo? And, and do you, why do you think that they have technological origins? Uh, right. So um, those eight signals that we uh, picked out in our paper, um, they're actually um, the, the very interesting uh, signals that fit the description that, uh, that we're looking for in terms of um, signals that only exist in on-target uh, views and disappear in off-target views uh, and that drift through uh, the, the, I guess you could call it the plot, really, the, uh, uh, the, the, the frequency of the, um, of the signal moves over with time. Uh, and uh, these are signals that we found um, really by filtering out all the data because uh, the algorithm you know, detects, um, detected millions of, of potential signals uh, with various levels of, of confidence. Uh, but after lots and lots of work and filtering, uh, those are the ones that that that's that really stayed. Um, so uh, they they do fit. They kind of you know check off all the marks of what a techno signature uh, should look like. But are they really techno signatures? Uh, is a different question now to really see what their origins are. Um, I mean, they certainly could be, uh, but uh, I uh, I I like to wear my skeptic hat and say. You know, it's um, it's not it's not you don't really know uh, what that is, uh, and uh, you know it would it would really take more um, the the in, in, it would take more ruling out really to uh, to see uh, what they could be because because really aliens should be the last thing <laughs> you uh, you conclude to um, it's uh, yeah it's 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 something that uh, that you would it would require m many more of these. Uh, we would have to find more of these. We would have to find more of these uh, uh, by looking at these same targets um, and not have any other explanations. Um, yeah, that would be that would be something that uh, that would we would need to look forward to in the future. And Cherry, Leo mentioned um, further observations um, of the stars that the signals came from. What what would you be doing in those in those observations? Would you would you be looking at them for a for a very long time to to look for I don't know trends in in the sort of signals that come from those stars? What um, what would be next with with a follow up? Yeah, indeed, the only way to verify any signals would be to really detect them again. Now, these data that we have analyzed, the observation initial, initially took place in around around 2016, I think. And they were and, um, using, using Peter's algorithm, we've only just detected them sort of last year. So immediately we have asked for follow-up observations with the Green Bank Telescope again. We tried to use the same configuration. We did the same cadence on-off, on-off observations. Now, we did not detect any of these signals of interest again. This is not necessarily to say that they are definitely not ETI signals. It is possible that whatever is transmitting these signals could be intermittent. So maybe they were not on when we looked at them again. It's hard to say. Um, I guess the only way to know would be yeah, if whoever has 
telescope resources to try and monitor these stars um, as much as we can. And and these signals, would they be of interest um, to astrophysicists? Do they, do they, you know, is it possible that they're coming from uh, some sort of astrophysical process that we don't understand? Um, or is it, is it more likely that they're, I don't know, some sort of glitch or noise or, or something like that? Like Leo already explained, most uh, all of the natural phenomena emit at a much wider um, bandwidth. So these very narrow signals that we are detecting, I would say they are most likely interference, uh, human-made interference still. Um, well, there's a possibility that they might come from aliens, but we haven't been able to prove one way or the other. Okay, and and Peter, the the algorithm that you're that you've developed it's it's been very useful already. Um, will you be using it to analyze data from other telescopes? So this work is still, in my opinion, preliminary in 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 like investigating the scope of using deep learning and machine learning for these kinds of problems. And so this paper really just showcases a specific example of where this is useful. And so to scale this to other kinds of projects with the breakthrough listens such as Meerkat or um, the VLA or these array-based telescopes will require um, further training, but also redesign of some key components of these algorithms. So like we discussed, we have this cadence situation where we have an on-off, on-off, you know, scan of the sky. But this isn't really available for these array-based telescopes. And so these telescopes have a different method of filtering for interference. Um, They do so by looking all at once with different antennas at the sky and forming different beams. You can think of it as like different eyes on the sky type of thing. And if you see a signal on multiple of these eyes, quote unquote, then you can determine that there are probably interference, right? Because obviously, if you're looking at one signal, one target, and the signal is appearing on other, um, you know, beams, then it means that the signal isn't actually coming from that one particular star, but probably coming from your environment, hence RFI. And so to do that, um, to bake that kind of filtering process into a deep learning algorithm requires, you know, more design and more development on that end. But the idea of using deep learning algorithms and the at least the the, the framework is rather uh, modular in the sense that we can apply similar ideas um, to different kinds of telescopes and different kinds of data without reinventing the wheel completely. Um, and so it's just a matter of implementation rather than coming up with the idea to begin with. Um, and so that's the that's the hope right now is to is is to develop, um, is to scale this kind of search technique to other kinds of telescopes where the filtering process is you know, different than what we did with the Green Bank Telescope. And Peter, are there any applications of this algorithm beyond SETI or, or even beyond astronomy? Or it, could it be used in, in other situations um, to look for, you know, let's say, very rare signals in, in other types of data? Right. So this 
particular approach could be used in potentially other fields of radial astronomy um, to look for, to once again reject uh, radio frequency interference. Um, and so we've seen there are there has been uh, use cases uh, in literature and in, in people using these kinds of techniques. Um, but in terms of the greater scope, like, as in like like beyond astronomy, I'm not quite sure um, because the the modality of like the data is so different between just in astronomy, not even beyond astronomy is so different that you know it really needs someone, an engineer or a developer of some sort to adapt um, some kind of framework to their particular use case, in which case it will be completely different for individual problems that they're trying to solve, if that makes any sense. It's, it's, a, it's a, the work that I've developed is tackling a specific kind of problem. And so I fitted, uh, you know, the approach to that particular problem. So in terms of scaling this to other kinds of problems, we'll obviously require more uh, development on that end. And Cherry, I wanted to ask you about um, another project that you're working on. It involves radio telescopes, but it's very different. It's not a SETI program. It's called Nanograv, um, where you're using radio telescopes to try to detect gravitational waves. Um, could you give us a, a little taste of how that's done? Sure. Nanograv um, tries to detect, hopes, Nanograv hopes to detect um, gravitational waves that is traveling through space-time um, space by monitoring pulsars. Now, funny enough, there is a little link between pulsars and SETI. In, when pulsars were first detected, people did wonder if they could be signals from aliens, and they were, in fact, nicknamed Little Green Men. Oh, that's right, yeah. Soon enough, we realized that it's nothing to do with that. In fact, it's very rapidly spinning neutron stars, where their radio emissions is misaligned with their rotation. And so as they are spinning around, we see their emissions, the radio waves, only when the emission comes to our line of sight, sort of the same way as how a lighthouse works. And this is also what gives us the name pulsars. Now, pulsars turns out to be really stable rotators, especially the fastest spinning ones, the sort of the so-called millisecond pulsars. They are like cosmic clocks because their rotation and in turn their pulses can be so precisely predicted. Now the idea of nanograph or the so-called pulsar timing array experiment is that if we can monitor many different millisecond pulsars in different locations of the sky. Now, if there would be a gravitational wave that is passing through space-time, this gravitational wave would affect the arrival time of the pulsars in a correlated way. So all the pulsars sort of in the same direction to the sky, might the pulses might come to Earth a little earlier than we expected, whereas pulsars from another area of the sky might come to us a bit later. 
it is this correlated deviation in the post-arrival time that we are trying to detect and to infer any passing of gravitational waves. And and so what um what what sort of targets are you looking at? Are you are you looking at the same sort of uh, black hole and neutron star mergers that um, that LIGO looks at, or, or are you looking at, um, or, or do you hope to look at gravitational waves from different sources? Right. So the type of gravitational wave emitting sources is related to the wavelength of the waves that we are trying to detect, and for pulsar timing array, as the name nanograph suggests, we are targeting nanohertz gravitational waves. And that is um, a little earlier stage than, let's say, what uh, LIGO uh, is detecting. We are, we are detecting the um, earlier stage of the merger. I see. Okay. So, so in a sense, your, your data will be complementary to, um, to the LIGO data. And and so does that mean that um, if there is a merger, you know, let's say of two neutron stars, which is of great interest to astronomers, that nanograv could could spot that a bit earlier than LIGO, and and everybody could point their telescope in the right direction, um, yeah. and, and watch it unfold. Is that uh, you know this whole idea of multi messenger astronomy? Yeah, good question. Now, uh, I think the. Way these gravitational wave experiments are set up, it's a little different. So, pulsar timing array is most sensitive to the stochastic background. Um, gravitation, yes, the stochastic gravitational wave background. And in fact, we are not very good at localizing exactly which source may might come from. So, so is this this idea of uh, the primordial gravitational waves, the um, gravitational wave, the, the equivalent of the cosmic microwave background, the cosmic gravitational yeah, wave yeah. background? Is that what you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, I guess that's, that would be a way to put it. Yeah. Okay, okay, I understand. Yeah, gotcha. And um, and Peter and, and Leo, you're both um, just embarking on your careers in, in, in astronomy. Uh, do you think that you'll continue to work on SETI in the future? Or um, do you have other interests that you'd like to pursue? Um, maybe Leo could go first on that. Uh, right. So um, uh, in the immediate future, I, uh, I think I'm going to uh, abandon SETI directly. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I've applied to uh, grad school at uh, McMaster University um, in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, where I'll be doing something a bit similar. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's going to be in the field of astrobiology. Uh, so it's still, um, you know, looking for possibility of life uh, uh, on other planets, uh, but not this time looking for uh, technological signatures, uh, more maybe biosignatures or more, um, you know, what uh, uh, what could be leading to the genesis of life or abiogenesis uh, life life that comes from non-life, this kind of stuff. Um, I've also other interests, uh, dark matter and galaxy evolutions. I've applied to other universities as well, just to, you know, perhaps, so these are perhaps other paths that I could be taking that are not uh, so much uh, extraterrestrial uh, life related. 
And and what about you, Peter? I, I understand that you, you first started developing this algorithm when when you were in high school. So it sounds like you've you have a, a long standing interest in both um, machine learning and SETI. Are you are, are you going to continue working in, in those fields or do you have your your uh, your eyes set on something else? Right. So I feel like there is incredible amounts of potential in using deep learning for these kinds of problems. And I think that, and I think that unfortunately not a whole lot of people are pursuing this kind of work. Um, and so I feel like it will be incredibly cool to continue this kind of path if it seems like not a whole lot of people are competing on working on this similar kind of project. Um, and so in that regard, I think uh, at least to some degree, SETI, um, I would like to be part of it in, in, in the near future, at least speaking in the near future as in like two years-ish. Um, and so there's a number of projects I'm currently working on. I hope to continue to contribute and be part of uh, for, 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 for those. Um, in terms of like Leo has talked about grad school, I have no idea where I'm going to be in grad school at the current moment or what projects I'm going to be pursuing when I get there. But to put broadly, I'm interested in using deep learning to solve various kinds of fundamental problems in, in physics and astronomy. Um, and wherever those kinds of problems might lead me, I'll probably do work in, in those kinds of fields. Um, and so currently, SETI is one of those interests um, I've also previously worked with LIGO, for example, um, and probably other various kinds of projects involving deep learning in the future. Um, and so just like Leo, undecided, uh, but different from Leo, um, SETI will, will still be part of my work in the uh, coming few years. But yeah. Uh, that's great. I'm, I have to say, as a you know old codger myself, I'm really uh, <laughs> really jealous of the opportunities that uh, that you guys can look forward to. Um, that paper by Peter, Leo, Cherry, and colleagues is called "A Deep Learning Search for Techno Signatures from 820 Nearby Stars," and it appears in the journal Nature Astronomy. Peter, Leo, and Cherry, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. There's much more about SETI on the Physics World website. The physicist and author Paul Davis writes about the search in a feature called The Eerie Silence. This implores scientists not to give up their search and instead to expand it beyond traditional radio frequencies. We also have a profile of the SETI Institute's Sophia Shake, who is searching for techno signatures using the Allen telescope array in California. This is the first telescope to be designed specifically for SETI. She speaks to David Apple about some of the strange signals that SETI researchers have discovered. And that article is called Meet the Technosignature Researcher on the Lookout for Exocivilizations. Now, let's take a quick look at what's new on Physics World. The author and science journalist Philip Ball has written a fascinating feature about how quantum computers could be used for composing music. 
The article was inspired by an event in London called Sounding Cubits, where Phil rubbed shoulders with the likes of Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno. They were there to listen to a performance by the University of Plymouth's Eduardo Miranda, who, along with two colleagues, performed an improvisational piece using laptops connected to quantum bits. To discover how quantum computers are being used by composers and musicians, check out Phil's article, which can be found in the Features section of the Physics World website. Flash radiotherapy is an emerging cancer treatment that delivers therapeutic radiation at ultra-high dose rates. The approach shows promise to vastly reduce normal tissue toxicity while still effectively destroying tumors. With this in mind, Physics World is hosting a dedicated Focus on Flash Technology Week later this month. During the week, which runs from Monday the 27th to Friday the 31st of March, the Physics World Medical Physics Channel will bring you updates on the latest research advances in this field. We'll also be hosting two keynote webinars highlighting cutting-edge flash technology developments. You can register for the webinars and learn more about the week at physicsworld.com forward slash medical dash physics. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS. Thanks to Peter Ma, Cherry Ng, and Leo Risk for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we look at how undergraduate physics programs could be modified to better prepare students to tackle the countless social, environmental, and economic problems that affect humanity. Physics World.